0: Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I think it makes sense to be utterly and completely hopeless. I don't just mean about this life, although that's understandable as well. The confusion that our culture is in, the miserable polarisation of everything, uh, the lack of trust in and trustworthiness of so many of our institutions, and uh, the consequential necessity of a kind of unbridled selfishness, all make hope for this life pretty unlikely. I was speaking with a teacher at a local school a few weeks ago, and the school had done a survey of year eight girls, year group of 180, and the number of girls who ticked the box they have hope in the future was eight. Whether it's about home ownership or job satisfaction or family life, our cultural chickens are coming home to roost. Young people are trying to construct a life on a sea of hopelessness, and it's nauseating. It's suffocating, it's crushing them. But like I say, I'm not even referring to this life. I mean universal cosmic hopelessness. If, if you Google our question for today, where is it all headed, you'll find that there are three primary candidates for the ultimate future, the big crunch, the big fade, or the big rip. Uh, I don't, of course, pretend to have the scientific expertise to understand, let alone explain the physics involved in these options. But they have to do with a rapidly expanding universe, which rips itself apart, or a slowly expanding universe, which just fades out to be 0.01 degree above absolute zero. That's very, very cold. Uh, or a rubber band kind of universe that gets to the end of its expansion and then contracts back to a massive crunch. The big crunch, the big fade, or the big rip. That's the future either way. That's all there is. That is life, the universe, and everything. Ultimately, utterly, without any future for the long term. And so, as I say, I think it makes sense. It's just being honest and realistic to be utterly and completely hopeless. Unless you know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow you maintain attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, that's how the Apostle Paul puts his great ambition. That's what the Apostle Paul has to say in the face of the hopelessness of life. To be formed by and conformed to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Everything, not just personally, although that is wonderfully true, but cosmically, as well, And so this morning, we're going to see the difference that the resurrection of Jesus makes to the question of where it's all headed. As Alison mentioned, we've been asking some of life's big questions through this Easter period. And we've come to the end of this series asking the hope question. And it really matters. We are innately future-oriented creatures. And what this... Easter story tells us is that everything is headed somewhere not just round and round in a circle not just to fade out or crunch out or whatever it's headed for glory for unbroken and unending life for joy that there is a wonderful future for the world and that future can give us hope living hope in the present whatever circumstances we find ourselves in Because the God who raised Jesus from the dead speaks into the fears and the hopelessness that makes sense in this world, and he says, see, I am making all things new. And that is a hope that changes everything, including life here and now. And we're going to unpack that hope today under three headings, uh, the hope of glory, the nature of glory, and the life of glory. The hope of glory, the nature of glory... And the life of glory. So first in the hope of glory. What actually is this future hope held out in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen? Let's step through this glorious vision that we see in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The first thing we notice here is newness, a new heaven And a new earth, just a few verses later, we hear God saying, I'm making everything new. And and right here at the the very beginning, there's an important distinction. What what John sees here is not new in the sense of entirely replacing the old. It's new in the sense of renewed, of fixed up, of restored. Uh, The the way that if you have a car crash and send it off to the repairers, when it comes back, it's a new car. You can tell that that's what John has in mind because of the way he describes the newness. What passes away is that which characterises the old world, sin and death, and what goes with them, mourning and crying and pain. That's what is deleted. In its place is the wonder and perfection of a world renewed, this world renewed, including intriguingly at the end of the chapter, the glory and the honour of the nations being brought into this city. Fascinating. Presumably something like the great cultural achievements of the world, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, something like that, the the album, I, I don't know what it will be. No decay, no destruction just life the way it was always meant to be. Uh, That's the same point uh, when it says that we know more sea. Uh, I heard of a Christian surfer who's really unhappy about this verse like he liked all of the Bible. He just really didn't like this verse that we know sea. Why not? And and he was like, I don't want to be in any world without a sea no matter how new it is. But of of course what we're dealing with here is metaphor uh, and Uh, In the book of Revelation and throughout actually much of the Old Testament, the sea represents the dark forces of chaos that threaten God's plan and purpose and people. It's the sea that Leviathan comes from. There be monsters. It's the sea where there's darkness and chaos and uncontrollability. But in the new creation, in the new heaven and earth, there's no more sea. There is no more chaos. There is no more darkness and evil. There's no place where monsters lurk, waiting to wreak havoc and devour. And into this new heaven and new earth comes a city, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned, For her husband. The writer of Revelation is given a vision, the the crescendo. This is is where it's all headed, the future of the world. And and what does he see? Notice, not individual souls rising up and escaping this material world, leaving the earth, going to heaven, as as it's so often called. No, no, the, the, the future is not people going to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth and utterly transforming it. It's described as a marriage. This holy city, this new world, heaven and earth, they're they're meant to be together. Now remember, of course, John is operating with metaphor, much as I'd like it to be a literal city, given that part of the work that I do is with an organisation that's called City to City. This would be like our theme verse, yes, except it's a metaphor. It's not a city as such. It's a people. It's a community. It's the currently despised by the Roman Empire people of God. Except now, in this vision, vindicated and beautiful, and glorious. The, the reason that it's a, these people take the shape of a city, right, that's what you can do in dreams, isn't that? It? So it just, it's just awesome. The reason that these people take the shape of a city is that it's a specific city, the city of Jerusalem. A new Jerusalem. The heart and soul and centre of God's, of God's old covenant people. Used metaphorically here to represent the heart and soul and centre of God's new covenant people as well. God finishes jobs that He starts. He started something in Abraham and He will complete it at the end. Nothing stops God from fulfilling His plans and purposes. And that's why this new people has this shape of a Jerusalem, the new city. It wins. We win. Because Jesus wins. He will not be robbed of his bride. No one will take that away from him. Not even sin or evil or death, which takes everything away from everyone. No. And so the marriage will finally take place. And just as in uh, all marriages, there are new living arrangements. We had a wedding uh, in the life of the church uh, last week. Uh, prior to that they weren't living together i'm pretty sure uh but now i know they weren't actually but now they're living together and you know what it's okay in fact it's better than okay well i don't know actually maybe it's not but it's great it's supposed to be great at least and so there'll be new living arrangements here verse three and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying see the home of god is among mortals he will dwell with them as their god they will be his peoples and god himself will be with them Of course, this is really the heart of it all. God will make his home among human beings like you and me. The the new heaven and earth, the world made new, that will now be God's home. Uh, The Greek words uh, for home and dwell that are used here are the same as when we read at the beginning of John's gospel. Remember, John in Revelation is the same as John in the gospel. And right at the beginning of John's gospel, uh, he has these wonderful words, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and made his home among us. It's it's a word that similarly conjures up images of God's presence in the temple and now even more so, what God has done is coming to live among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And what John writes, uh, writes about Jesus' personal presence, we've seen his glory that's what happens when God makes his home in the new world. We'll see his glory. What God did very specifically and in a located and time-bound way in Jesus Christ, he came to dwell with us, pitched his tent among us. He will do on that day on a cosmic scale. His healing, his comforting his transforming presence will always and constantly be making us and everything else new just as heaven and earth were joined together in Jesus Christ so one day heaven and earth will be joined fully and forever when God makes his home among us And, of course, certain things follow necessarily from that. Verse 4, death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Heaven comes down to earth, that is God, makes his home here, and death and mourning and crying and pain will be no more. No death. Just like the risen Jesus, we'll have bodies made new that death and disease can't touch anymore. No death means no mourning. No suffering means no tears, no pain. And just as God will remake this whole earth, he'll remake your body as well. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, that we are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while uh, while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. We are renewed inwardly now, spiritually born again, if you like, never to die, even as outwardly, and as I had my 57th birthday just this last week, I was reminded in yet again particular fashion, we're wasting away outwardly but then will be renewed outwardly as well. Did you see, the, the new creation here isn't harps and clouds and hovering in the air. No, in the new creation, you'll walk and dance and sing and hug and kiss and eat. Just like the risen Jesus did with his friends before his ascension. And hand in glove, without making new of the material world, you'll finally find all your longings met. You see, this is this is the point really, the, the family that you never had, the the body that you never had, the home that you never had, the world that you never had. It's coming. God will make his home with us. And because he's here, everything else will be the way it was always supposed to be. You'll be the way that you were always supposed to be. Things will be the way you've always longed them to be. All the broken bones and all the broken relationships remade. The new world, in other words, will be like this present one in the way that we see flashes of beauty and power and delight and glory in it. But rather than flashes, the new heaven and the new earth will be full of them. Because unlike this present age, death and mourning and crying and pain, and all of the things which cause those experiences, all the things that characterise so much of the world as we know it, it'll be abolished. They're gone. No more. That's why among these beautiful verses, we see a couple of verses that are more confronting. The, 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 the paragraph ends in a very kind of, whoa, I wasn't kind of expecting that sort of way, don't you think? But it has to be, don't, you see? It has to be. If there's going to be no more mourning or crying, or suffering, or pain, or tears, or death, then all that is evil will have to be excluded. And so nothing unclean will enter it. Nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood. Liars and evildoers and so on and so on. Do you see why this follows? Judgment is required because God won't let evil and sin and death disfigure the world he loves again. But notice who it is who gets in. It's those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Earlier in uh, the Revelation, Jesus himself, speaking to the church, tells us how to get into the, the book of life, how you get your name there. It's by repenting is by throwing yourself in with him, this lamb who was slain for us. That's what it takes, that's all it takes to enter the new world when it comes for this future to be yours. It's not that you're somehow a better person. It's not that you have to live up to some standard. No, it's simply to hurl yourself onto Jesus. To allow his death for your sin to be your death for your sin. So that you can have his life. It's why we work on being everyday witnesses. It's our theme for this year. To be equipped and intentional in praying. In inviting people into the life of the church, formally or informally. And in spiritual conversations, because... In the end, there's a great divide. Everything new, healing for every kind of pain. That's the future hope held out in the gospel. Uh, One person uh, who knows the power of this hope uh, is a woman that uh, some of you will have heard of or even read her books. Her name is Joni Erickson Tata. She was born into a sporting family and was a skilled athlete herself until aged 17. She did that thing which we all get told, don't don't ever do this. She dived into a water without checking the uh, the depth. She broke her neck and she became a a quadriplegic. She's now 73, actually, still alive. And she's absolutely still a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what keeps her going is this hope. In her autobiography, she describes how at her church, the congregation would be invited to kneel when they prayed, right? You can imagine that, to kneel when they prayed. Every week she'd go to church, there was an invitation to kneel. Every week she would break down in tears because she couldn't do it. She couldn't kneel. That that experience, that inability to kneel. But she describes how on one occasion she managed to actually focus on the prayer that was being prayed and the theme of the prayer was the hope of resurrection. And so she writes this. I suddenly realised that when I get to the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I'll be able to do on my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to get on my feet and I'm going to dance. That's the future hope that's held out in the gospel. That's what we're waiting for now. And it changes everything about how we live in the present. But before we get to that, I want to briefly dive a little more deeply into the nature of this glory, point two, Because you see, I've labored the truth that the newness of the new heaven and earth is not replacement, but repair. It's not that this creation is thrown onto the scrap heap to be replaced by a brighter, shinier version. Rather, it is this same creation that is repaired, restored, completed, perfected. And it turns out that there is a fundamentally important theological principle behind that. You see, this future renewal of the completion Uh, sorry, is the completion of a renewal that has already begun in one tiny place. The resurrection of Jesus, and specifically the resurrected body of Jesus, is the one location in the entire universe that has already been perfected. It's already been glorified. And the way that the New Testament describes a link between the resurrection of Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth is as the first fruits. Jesus' body, what, I don't know, 75 kilos? It's hard to know. I mean, if he was more like me, it'd be more like 120. Well, we won't go there. Uh, 75, 80 kilos, the first fruits of the renewal of the whole entire universe. And the point is that just as it goes with the body of Jesus, so it will go with the rest of creation. Essential to this is that the resurrection body of Jesus is both continuous and discontinuous with before his resurrection. It's continuous in that the same body, absolutely the same body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. The tomb was empty. It's, it's the fundamental affirmation of Easter, actually. That the tomb was empty. It wasn't. It didn't get a new one. He got a renewed one. And it walked and touched and was touched and ate and drank. Continuity. And... Not, don't say in, don't, don't say. But and and at the same time, it was discontinuous, glorified, so that in this body Jesus moved in and out of the presence of God, appearing to people at will until his final appearance and then ascension. So, so you see, the resurrection body of Jesus: continuity and discontinuity, both and as it goes with jesus body that one place in the universe that is already glorified raised utterly infused and empowered and enlivened by the holy spirit so it will ultimately go with the whole universe renewed in all the glory that it was created for now as he always does c.s lewis has a brilliant way to capture this in his allegory the great divorce i don't know if that's a book you've read uh, I've read bits of it, I read it all uh, this week, just, it's, a, it's awesome, it's just so, so insightful, so great. Uh, he writes about glory, uh, he uses the word heaven, uh, and I'm going to say in a moment why I think we can't use that word anymore, it's just, it's dead I'm afraid. Uh, uh, and in fact, he, he, uh, he's the, the, the book is about a dream which, where he dreams that people now get to visit heaven, glory. Right? Except things are the wrong way around. The people who visit glory, us, not like regular human beings, are feeble and weak and insubstantial, kind of clouds and floaty and and vague. But glory, the people in glory, are weighty and substantial and awesome. Listen to how he depicts it. Um, They that is, the the humans now, pre-transformation, pre-glory, were in fact ghosts. Man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will, as you do with the dirt on a windowpane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Do you see the picture that he's trying to paint? The way things are in in heaven is is so awesomely substantial compared to what we are now that that when you walk on the grass, it doesn't bend and the dewdrops don't even know that you're there. He, He goes on. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged it till a sweat stood out on my forehead and I'd lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young, tender, beech leaf, B-E-E-C-H, leaf, lying on the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort. And I believe I did just raise it a little, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. Do you see what Lewis is trying to do to your imagination in, that, in that, this, this, this depiction? We think so often when we use the word heaven that, it's, that, that this idea of floaty and harps and clouds and hymns and, and all this sort of... And Lewis said, no, 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 no. Right now, you're floaty. I'm not sure I, I'm terribly encouraged by that idea of a, uh, uh, a smudge of dirt on a window pane. He's saying, that is the, the nature of our existence, pre-glorification. Then, oh yes, then you'll be weighty. Then you'll be something, then you'll be substantial, then you'll be real. To be all that God has created us to be. That's our hope. Which leads to the third point. What does it mean to live in this hope of glory? The book of Revelation, of course, uh, which has been our text for this morning from chapter 21, is written to Christians who are on the edge. They're on the edge of persecution and suffering. And at the same time, they're on the edge of complacency and compromise. And John, the seer, writes to them to say, come back from the edge Come into the centre, the centre of God's purposes for you because this, this is what they involve. And John's point is pretty simple, actually. It's pretty simple to say. It's it's kind of, when you're you're being persecuted, it's kind of harder to live, but this is is pretty simple. His, His point is simply this. Nothing is worth giving this glory up for. You you see that, don't you? Nothing is worth giving this glory up for. There's nothing that you could be offered. There is no temptation that could possibly make it worth it. There is no suffering that you might be pressured with that would mean that it would make sense to give this up. Uh, Jesus actually put it in really crassly financial terms he said do the math what does it profit a person I mean actually get your calculator out what is your profit if you're to gain the whole world Um, there's a great scene in the movie a man for all seasons where uh, someone has betrayed his own word for the sake of becoming the treasurer of wales and, uh, and the speaker quotes Jesus, says, For whales? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world, let alone the pathetic little temptations that tug at our hearts or the, the avoidance of suffering that tempts us? What could, does it profit the person to gain the whole world? but forfeit your soul. What can you give in exchange for your life? This life of glory, nothing, nothing is worth losing that for. And so here's the question as we reflect on this life of glory. What are the edges that you might be close to at the moment? On the one hand, um, where are you being called to suffer for Christ at the moment? Those minor acts of persecution or major ones, perhaps. Truth-telling at your workplace that makes it awkward for others and more awkward for yourself, because they might take it out on you. Really sacrificially caring for someone deeply when all you get in return is rejection and abuse. It might be that the load you're called to bear in this life is nearly overwhelming, in which case the invitation of John, the gift of John to you, is to say, feast on this vision. It's worth it. Know that this is your destiny and this is a hope for which it is worth persevering. But on the other hand, the edge might not be persecution but temptation. And so the question to ask in that case is, what are the temptations that are entwining themselves around Your heart. I think that for many, um, this is the more dangerous edge. It seems to me that so many people live quietly, desperate lives, afraid that they're going to miss out. Uh, Miss out on a family, miss out on great sex, miss out on great travel. Uh, So many people see these experiences. They're constantly put before us in magazines and ads and TV shows and all that kind of stuff. And they want them, the sights, the food, the wine, to touch the sky. And we have a phrase for this, right? YOLO. You know know what it means? You only live once. YOLO. You only live once and therefore... ..suck the marrow out of life. Because soon what you're going to be is... ..food for worms, boys. It's another movie reference. (laughs) And the hope of glory says... ..don't be ridiculous... Because Jesus was raised from the dead, this is our hope. You won't miss out on anything. It's not YOLO. It's you dolt. You do live twice. <laughs> you dolt. That not you dolt. That that would be unhappy. You dolt. You do live twice. In fact, you live glorified for all eternity. And what that means is that you can relax. It means you can sacrifice. It means you can be faithful. It means you can let people impose on you. You can give your money away and you can sit back and relax so that you don't have to work 100-hour weeks since you're not going to miss out on anything. The best wine and food that you can enjoy now, the greatest high you can experience now, anything that might tempt you to loosen your grip on the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing compared to what you will have and what you will be in glory. And do you see how that changes everything? You can live now with no regrets and no fears and no problem with sacrifice because our future is a glorious, physical, embodied, transformed future, not some disembodied soul. Your feet will touch the ground in the kingdom of God. You won't float, you'll march and dance and hug, and love, and eat, and drink. And you won't miss out on anything. And so you don't need to grab hold of every experience now before you die, you can relax. You're adult. This world is not all there is. And the point is, whether it's suffering or whether it's temptation, whatever the edge might be for you, John says, it's not worth it. Don't go there. Glory awaits you. C.S. Lewis, uh, again, just because he writes, he's, I think, the best writer on this, this sort of topic, uh, puts this, puts it like this at the very end of his Narnia series, and we'll close with this. This is uh, the end of the last battle of the book. The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page, now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you with all our hearts that you conquered death in your mighty resurrection and have opened the gate of glory. Keep us, we pray, in this hope that we have grasped. We ask it for your great namesake. Amen.